How are we? Good. It's great to see everyone. What a fantastic group of people. Welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Uh, so glad that you're with us. We're going to enter into our time of teaching, which we do every week. We're a community centered around the Word of God. Uh, this is our source for all truth, knowledge, and the way. So we come to it each week, but we've got to do some work. We've got to mine it for the wisdom, and, and as we've been saying in this series, the peculiar wisdom of Christ. And so if you've got a Bible, grab it. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. This is our third week in 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back right in front of you. looks like this. And if you do grab that Bible, it's on page 1011, where we're going to be today. We're still in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're walking section by section through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And Corinth, not so dissimilar from Seattle. It was a port city uh, right at the center of the Roman world. So a lot of coming and going. It was actually five times bigger than Athens. And people would, uh, on their way to Rome, cut through Corinth. And so a lot of people moved there. A lot of people garnered a lot of wealth during their time in Corinth. But also a lot of other things popped up as has a tendency to do when there's money. And there's lots of travelers, and there's social inequality, and so you can imagine, this was a truly uh, cosmopolitan city. Lots of ideas, lots of worship of a lot of things, lots of sex, uh, lots of misuse of money, lots of flashiness, uh, and lots of wisdom as well floating around. So Paul's going to write a letter here to this church that he helped to start. About two years earlier, he spent a year and a half there, so he started the church from ground zero, and at this point, it's probably a hundred or so people. So it's, it's not a huge church. I mean, we're talking at the very beginning of the Jesus movement, just about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so uh, Paul starts this church, and then he goes away to start another church, and he hears about some things happening that are out of step with Jesus Christ himself and the gospel message. And so we're titling this whole sermon series, Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. And in the introduction, if you haven't listened to that, highly recommend listening to that. It will give you sort of an overview of where we're going for this whole book. So let me ask God to be with us in our time of teaching, and, and then we'll get rolling. Father, we know you have some wisdom for us today, something we may not have seen before today. And so we just ask that you'd give us fresh eyes, ears, and open our hearts, God, soften our hearts right now with your spirit so that we might receive today what you have planned for us. As always, God, I pray that anything that is not from you would go in one ear and out the other, but if it is from you, may it stir in our hearts so that our affections for your son Jesus might increase so that his name in this city, in this world, may be renowned, that glory might come upon you and that we might enjoy all that you have for us. So be with us today in our teaching, God. I pray for my friends. Uh, just remove any distractions so that they might take away from today everything you want to give to them. We pray this in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, raise your, this is always, I'm curious about this. Raise your hand if uh, you engage even a little bit in the wild world of Twitter. Just, could you just raise your hand? I'm just so curious. Does anybody do Twitter? Okay, just a few of us. Yeah, this is not, not a gotcha, you're wrong, no. I was just curious. Um, I don't do much, bunch of, much Twitter. I started a Twitter account like seven years ago when we first started the church, thinking I might use it. Never used it. Tried to log on a couple years ago. Found out it had been hijacked by terrorists and <laughs> was being used for propaganda. And so I got shut down. <laughs> so I don't know how to get back into my account, so... I just don't use it. But, um, so you got to pay attention to your accounts, okay? And uh, so don't, don't look for me on Twitter. <laughs> now, how many of you, just uh, raise a hand, like follow on Instagram like an influencer? Like somebody you don't know at all, but you follow them. Okay, just be honest. Okay, influence. Okay, so that's more common. Um, and, of course, lots of people do this. This is why it's a thing. You know, this is why advertisers are now engaging in new ways to sell products, promote ideas through influencers. Now, what do we call this? We call this uh, following. 
right? And today's sermon is about the folly of following. Uh, now, why do I bring that up? It's not to sort of say, oh, we're the worst generation that's ever existed. Look at how easily we follow people we don't know very well, and we uh, put ourselves in different camps. No, actually, what we'll see today, this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Human beings tend to like to associate themselves with influencers for some reason. So today we're going to look at why, what that does and the danger of it, the folly of it, we're going to look at why that is, why that's the human, what's the psychology behind that, why do we do that. Then we're going to look at, is, is there anything wrong with wanting to be an influencer? And then we're going to ask, is there a right way to be an influencer or a right way to follow? That's where we're going today. All right here, packed into just a few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So let's read it together. And then we'll unpack. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So that's the big letter 1 in your Bible. Verse 10. That's the small 10. Here it is. Paul's just given his, his sort of welcome and his greeting. Last week we talked about he leads into what he's about to say, which is corrective. But he leads in seeing the potential in this church. Seeing everything that God has planned for him. Thanking God for everything that he's given to them. So he loves them. He's for them. He wants them to experience all that God has for them. So again, last week, you got to understand the tone with which we're coming into this corrective behavior. Because Paul's going to kind of be like, what are you doing? Might seem harsh, but it's out of love. Here we go. Verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say. That there is no divisions among you. And that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. This was some friend, Chloe's a, a woman who was a part of the church in Corinth and then went with Paul to Ephesus. And so a close friend and some of Chloe's associates have reported back to Paul, who is now in Ephesus, that this is happening. What's happening? That there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, quote, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, which is just the Aramaic for Peter, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. <laughs> this, is just so, this is so real. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. What's going on here? There's some people in the church who, who are connecting themselves. I, you know, so the word here, I belong to. I belong to Paul. In other translations in the ESV, it says, I follow Paul, or I follow Peter, or I follow Apollos. Now, this is so important to remember. Apollos was a disciple of Paul. Paul's like pro-Apollos. Paul thinks Apollos is great. Peter is one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus. He's the rock on which Jesus is going to build the church in Jerusalem. Peter's, Paul's pro-Peter. So he's not saying these guys have it wrong. He's just saying, what are you doing attaching yourself to them as if you follow them? And I'll break it down a little bit why people might have picked sides. But Paul's basically saying, what are you doing? Now, this is one of the reasons that there are divisions in the church. So the report that Paul's gotten is that the church is at conflict. There's factions within the church. There's cliques. People are envious of one another. There's rivalry. And Paul's saying, this is completely out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel unites us. The peculiar wisdom is that people from every socioeconomic class become one in Christ. 
that people from every background, people of every type of sin come together and receive forgiveness in Jesus, it unites us. And so when there's division in the church, it's a terrible picture of the gospel. He's saying that is completely out of step with the gospel. The gospel is a gospel that unites, not divides. So how in the world are you allowing this to happen? That's, that's what's going on. Now, the thing is, you've got to understand this about Corinth, just like our day and age. Human beings do this. <laughs> the wisdom of the world is to pick an influencer to attach yourself to. So this wasn't uncommon. In fact, in ancient Greece, there was an educational system called sophism. Um, um, so the sophists, which is just a Greek word for wisdom, uh, sophists were sort of professional orators, professional teachers that would go around and they would be hired by wealthy, uh, influential people in the city to teach their families or the people that they influenced, okay? So um, people were, it was really common to sort of attach yourself to a particular sophist. And sophists were sort of hired guns because they were really good at talking. <laughs> they were like, that was their profession. They were, they were wise, they were smart, they, could, um, they were skilled in the, the art of rhetoric. And so um, this is what they did. And oftentimes, uh, sophists sort of, over time, got a bad name because they would actually just sort of teach things that they didn't really believe in because they were paid to do it. And so it kind of becomes seen as a negative thing. But at this time, the people of Greece, this would have been common. Like, we all do this, right? We all have our favorite sophist teacher. It was sort of the educational system of the day. And so it wouldn't have been abnormal for them to bring that worldly wisdom into the church. Yeah, I follow Paul. I kind of like his teaching. I follow Peter. I like his boldness. I follow Apollos. I like that he's from Alexandria. He's got some unique wisdom, right? Like, we all kind of drop into our follower categories. Super common. And so they might have not even known that this shouldn't be done in the church. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The wisdom of Christ is different than the wisdom of the world. It's different than the sophist educational system. The wisdom of Christ is different. And so the church shouldn't look like the world. You shouldn't be broken into rivalries and factions within the church. What are we doing? We all are baptized into the name of Christ. We all received one baptism of the Holy Spirit. We all read and study the same person, Jesus. He's our teacher. It's out of step. And he says we need to begin to move in step once again. So you see what's going on here? And so this always happens. So human brilliance... Human brilliance tends to feed competition and pride. Human brilliance tends to feed competition and pride. And um, one scholar wrote this, The truth of the cross cannot be achieved through the best human intellect and strength, but must be received as a gift in human submission of faith and trust. And so if you organize yourself around teachers or influencers that you most... Um, that sort of tickle you best, or, or, or you feel like, ah, I'm with them, I, I, they resonate with you, if that's how you align yourself, you are going to miss the peculiar wisdom of the cross of Christ. This is just happening. This will just happen. Does Christ ever win by lifting himself up? Is that the gospel? By making himself better than, seem smarter than, and we'll go into this over the next several weeks. We'll dive deeper into this kind of peculiar wisdom. But the answer is no. The cross of Christ says, God wins us for his ends through giving himself up, humbling himself, subordinating himself to the cross so that we might experience life. That's the gospel. So Paul's saying, how can this be? Now, we could just say, we could just sort of stop there and say, oh, I see the folly. But let's look a little bit closer at why that would be. And the reason I want to do that is because we fall into these same traps. Now remember, these are all good teachers. <laughs> They're all on the same team. And they are being 
used by people to create rivalry and division. So Paul and Apollos and Peter, they haven't said anything wrong, done anything wrong. They are just puppets in other people's attempts to make themselves feel good. So what are they doing? What things are they looking at in Paul and Apollos and Peter that they could possibly turn to to create division? Well, let's look at it. So one group says, I belong to Paul, or I follow Paul. And the actual word for belong is I me, which means to be of. So I am of Paul. You see, you see the kind of sense of attaching your identity Sounds like the first thing you want to be careful of. Don't attach your identity to an influencer or a political figure or your favorite preacher. Don't do that. That's not who you are. You belong to who? Christ. Your identity is connected to Christ. So anytime you find yourself thinking, I'm one of these Paul types. I'm, I'm one of these Peter types. Just be very careful. Realize something's happening that's unhealthy, and turn away from it. So what were they seeing in Paul that they liked? Well, think about Paul. He started the church. He baptized some of the first members, though he says not many of them. <laughs> but he led them. It was his teaching and preaching that led many of them to Christ, to hear the good news from him. So there's a lot of personal loyalty. Like Paul. Paul, he's our man. If he can't do it, great. Okay, so Paul, like, he's got a lot of history there. So a lot of people are like, we got to stick with Paul. Like, he started the church. Like, oh, Paul's so great. Now, Paul also has a very sort of Jewish background. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Before he became a Christian, he was zealous in the study of Judaism. He studied under, he's like, he's sort of like the professor type, the PhD type. So Paul actually, though, he'll say later in the book, like, I knew, I'm, I'm not very wise, I'm weak. Actually, he's... He, he knows that he's smart. He's sort of, he's the kind of guy that would get his PhD in Hebrew studies, okay? So he's very smart. He's got this background. He's the one that started the church, and so there's loyalty. But some people, they didn't like certain things about what Paul did. What are some of the things Paul did? Well, Paul refused to take patronage from wealthy families. So we'll see. He'll say it's not wrong for the preacher to get paid because of the work he's doing as a pastor, but he's saying, for me, I choose not to do that so that the cross of Christ isn't affected. That nobody could say the only reason Paul's doing that is because he's just like the sophists and he's trying to make a buck. So Paul worked as a tent maker. Now imagine if you were sort of used to, and in good spirits, wanting to say, Paul, let me give you some money so you can focus more on your work of the gospel. And Paul says, you know what? I'm good. What? Do you think I have bad intentions? Do you think I have bad motives? So some people didn't like Paul because he wouldn't take money from them. Now, Paul also says that he wasn't known for his eloquent speech. Now, what we'll see about Apollos is Apollos was actually known. That was part of his reputation. That he was a great orator. He was a, he was a great speaker. He could turn a phrase. He was probably pretty funny. He was from Alexandria, another huge metropolitan hub, a hub of wisdom. So some people's like, I don't like Paul's... He didn't use fancy speech. He doesn't turn a phrase like Apollos might. So some people then said, I'm with Apollos. Apollos, Apollos, he's our man. If he can't do it. Great. Okay, so Apollos came to Corinth after Paul left. Paul actually kind of sent Apollos to help the church continue to grow. So Apollos came to water what Paul had planted. And so he comes in and, and he has some distinctives. Oh, like I said, in Acts 18, you can read about this. Apollos had great passion when he spoke. He's a passionate orator. He was an Alexandrian Jew. So he was a Jew, but he probably had much more of a Greek influence. Alexandria being in North Africa, in Egypt there. It was a center of learning. This is where St. Augustine came from, right? So um, he, he probably had a type of wisdom that was felt a little bit more Greek. So maybe some of the Greeks... They kind of like the more philosophical type of preaching. Maybe they kind of, I'm more of an Apollos guy. So, um, remember though, there was nothing different in his substance. They were preaching the same gospel. It was only a difference in their style. 
Now, who's Peter? Now, it says Cephas here. That's, I said, again, the Aramaic for Peter. So this is most likely referring to the Apostle Peter, who probably also came to Corinth for a time and did some teaching. Um, so he comes in, and actually, Peter's the only one of the three who had a wife. Well, imagine that. He comes in. His wife's with him. He's probably got some great sermon illustrations about marriage. So some of the married folk in the crowd are like, I love this guy. I really connect with his illustrations. He's talking about marriage. And, and it's so cool that he's got this experience with Jesus. Because, like, the other two guys didn't walk and talk with Jesus in the same way that Peter did. And so, like, I really like that firsthand kind of storytelling that he does. I'm more of like a Peter guy. See how this goes? We don't know exactly what it was that was drawing these people to these different leaders, but it was nothing the leaders were doing. The leaders weren't saying, Paul, he's no good. Apollos, eh, stay away from him. Peter, no, that wasn't happening. It was the people who were choosing their favorites. Now, we'll see later that there was a group of teachers within the church, and so the, the second letter that Paul writes, 2 Corinthians, does address teachers within the community who were saying, hey, Paul's got it wrong, Peter's got it wrong, and Paul's got it wrong. But that's not what's happening here in this text. So we're going to focus in on this text about when the teachers are teaching the same substance, but they just have different styles. So this is slightly different than maybe even sort of denominational differences, like Protestant versus Catholic or something like that, or even Calvinist versus Arminian. Uh, it was less about dividing around those theological issues and more about just dividing on who do you like best? Whose preaching style do you like best? So it's like if you hear it today, you could go around. Maybe you're doing a little bit of, maybe you're doing a little church shopping in Seattle and somebody says to you, I love, love that Richard Dahlstrom over there at Bethany. I'm a real Richard guy. Or somebody says to you, oh, I'm a real Jeff Neuschwander guy up there at Central Community Church. Real Jeff guy. I love the way he communicates. Some might even say, I'm a real Dave guy over there at Sedaris. It's a very small faction within the overall church, okay? But it, there's a chance, okay? So it's, there's no, the message is the same for the most part, but the style is different. And Paul's saying, what are we doing? We all follow Christ. Now, there was this third, fourth category that's hard for scholars. They disagree. When Paul says, and then there's some of you that say, I belong to Christ, so sort of three options here. He could, this, it seems like it's just the fourth in a list. It seems perhaps it's just the fourth in, in the list. So maybe Paul's saying, um, and then some of you get it right, that I belong to Christ. He could be saying that. Or he could be saying, but as for me, I belong to Christ. Or he could be saying, and then there's a group of you who so smugly says, like, you know it better than anyone. But I belong to Christ. That's like the super arrogant. Yes, you get it right, but the way you do it shows you don't get it. Hard to know exactly what Paul's doing here. Let's pick the last one and just say he's sort of pointing out, even if you say the right thing, you can do it in the right way. Which is to say, we've got it right and all of you are so sinful. So you can even get the right answer and be totally out of step with Christ. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I belong to Christ. There's so many ways to be out of step with this peculiar wisdom of Jesus, which says we are one in Christ. One faith, one gospel, one baptism, one spirit, one God. Though in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So there can be distinction. It's okay to have your favorite preacher as long as it doesn't create division or rivalry. Once it does that, you're completely out of step with the gospel. That's Paul's message. The message is this. Do not divide. Do not distinguish yourself by the preacher you enjoy most because we only have one message. And Paul says, that's what I came to preach. He says, we only have one sacrifice. That's Jesus crossed Christ crucified. And there's only one hope for salvation. And that's a regeneration 
by the one Spirit of God that makes us new. But we all do it. But we all do it. So, um, why do we do this? So what's the psychology? Like, why, hopefully this is resonating with you. I've done this in my life. I've gotten in fights with people because they don't like my favorite preacher, even though they're a brother and sister who's pursuing the same end. In seminary, you get in fights all the time. <laughs> people are literally paying tons of money so that they can go get a job where they get paid almost nothing. <laughs> and you'd think we'd all be on one team. And we get in fights about who our favorite theologians are. So it happens. What's going on internally? Why do we do this? What's the psychology of it all? Do you know? Why, do we, why does following lead to division so frequently? Again, I, it's important to say this happens in the world too, not just in the church. But the church is supposed to be different from the world. In a sense, you could say we are supposed to be divided and distinct from the world. So what I'm not saying is that the whole world should be, can be united if we just choose unity. No, the church is distinct from the world because we follow Jesus. The difference between the world and us is we follow Jesus and they follow anything but Jesus. So there will be distinction, but in the church there should be no distinction. I just want to make that clear. Um, Paul doesn't believe that we can just have unity without Jesus. So distinction is not necessarily bad, only, or division, only when it happens in the church. So why does this happen, though, in the church? So I stumbled across uh, this sermon by Martin Luther King, Jr., by the powers of Google, because I listened to a few of his old speeches last week. Um, Google recommended another speech to me this week, and it was so amazing. I'll come back to this at the end. He preaches a sermon, Martin Luther King Jr., in 1968, about, uh, it's called The Drum Major Instinct. What's he talking about? The marching band. And I thought, this is great, because two weeks ago, I talked about the marching band. So I'm going to come back to that uh, marching band analogy about being in step. But um, in this sermon, he highlights uh, a psychologist named Alfred Alder, an Austrian psychologist who sort of grew up underneath Sigmund Freud. So, you know, Freud, the id, the ego, whatnot. And um, Alder, uh, at, at some point, diverged from Freud and became a critic of Freud. Freud said everything was tied at the deepest level to this, this uh, sexuality and, and how that can get messed up as a child and lead to mental illness. Well, Alder said, no, that's more of a um, byproduct of there's a, more, there's a deeper uh, desire that drives. And Alder pointed to this drive for distinction. Uh, or this drive for superiority, this drive for self-transcendence, which is to separate yourself from the crowd. And um, so you probably might not know about him, but he's the one who came up with the theory of the inferiority complex. You heard about this? People with in, the inferiority complex and how the inferiority complex drives people to try um, to overcome that. So if I... If, um, I struggle with beauty, and um, I have an inferiority complex around my beauty, then I'm going to do unhealthy things to try to become like a supermodel, not recognizing that a supermodel is airbrushed and has 100 people trying to make them look pretty, and they're using all sorts of camera tricks and whatnot, right? But you it's this inferiority complex that drives you, and so you become unhealthy in the way you express seeking to distinguish yourself or transcend your state, right? And so he said that's, that's really what drives us. And so you, in his um, clinical practice, he would help people come to understand who they are and not be driven by this unhealthy um, seek to become, to transcend who they really are. Now, how does this tie into why I think, or at least one hypothesis to why we divide as a people and we put ourselves underneath these influencers? Here's what I think happens. All of us struggle with this inferiority complex, like, and when we see somebody that we think is superior, we can come underneath them and attach ourselves to them in an unhealthy way so that we might experience the benefit of their intellect or their oratory skill or their good looks or the way they dress or their power, their influence. And we feel, therefore, lifted up, right? And it's rooted in this deep insecurity that we all have. And so we're kind of prone to this. 
And definitely people prey on this inferiority complex. So I don't know, I don't know I'm not a, a psychologist uh, by study, so you know, if you are, you can <laughs> correct me if I'm way off here, but I think at least in this sense, Alder's on to something really important. I actually spoke to a few uh, counseling students who, you know, we can trust at least a little bit of what Alder said. And so as we come underneath somebody that's stronger than us and we sort of give our allegiance to them, we feel protected or safe or strong. Uh, but it necessarily, when we connect ourselves to a mere human, will make us engage in division and rivalry with those that are connected to someone else. Is this making sense? Just nod your head if this is making sense. Okay. Um, so as I was just thinking about this, we, like, we can do this even, even in the church world. And if you're not a part of the church world, amen. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Don't get into it, right? Don't get into these annoying rivalries. But we do this. It's like, uh, it's, it's like gladiators, right? We like pick our gladiator. This guy's the smartest and he yells the loudest or this guy's the funniest and he dresses really cool and look at how many followers they have and so I'm with this guy and so we put our gladiators out to battle and, and there's literally YouTube videos you can find where so-and-so battles so-and-so and they take snippets and they go back and forth. It's like, it's like what? Ancient Rome. Who also had what? Gladiators. And what do we want to be? Entertained. So you, some of y'all might be too young for this. There was once a famous movie <laughs> with a once famous actor <laughs> named Russell Crowe. Anybody know about this? Uh, an, a, a movie called Gladiator. And at one time, it was the biggest movie in the world. I think it even was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. I don't know if it won. But there's this famous line in the movie where Russell Crowe, um, is sent out. He doesn't play himself in the movie. <laughs> he plays a, a Roman a gladiator, a former soldier. So he's, you know, he's a wicked good fighter. And uh, they send him out there, and there's all these other huge, giants, professional gladiators. And, and basically, they're throwing uh, these sort of slaves out there to be murdered. And it's the entertainment of the people watching to see these professional gladiators slay and kill, and they're bloodthirsty, and it's their entertainment. Well, Russell Crowe goes out there and he kills them all, like 10 of them. And, um, and he's standing there in the arena alone, and, and the crowd is hushed. And he looks around. It's a really powerful scene. And he yells, Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? And it's like really power. Like, <laughs> the Lord brought that to mind. I went back and I watched it. And I just thought, this is a powerful rebuke, e even to us in the church. And again, if you're not a part of the church, I'm so glad that you're not caught up in this rivalry that can happen. But when we start to look at our teachers as our entertainment, when we start to align ourselves with our favorite preachers, and, and, and this person's like me, or I like how funny they are, when we do this, we're just like the ancient Romans. We're here to be entertained rather than to do what? To worship and glorify who? The crucified Savior. And so, like, if you've ever found yourself in those battles or just, just stop, Paul says. <laughs> just stop. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't seek your own entertainment your own conquering of your inferiority complex by associating yourself with a mere man or a mere woman. You can like their stuff, you can read their stuff, you can retweet their stuff, but don't let your identity be attached to theirs. Some are good and they'll tell you, don't do it. They'll say, hey, if you're going to watch my sermon online, great, I hope it helps you, but please get plugged into a local church where your pastor's probably not going to be as good as me. <laughs> this is what they're saying, and they're right. Not everyone is as good. Not everyone's a great orator. Not everyone's that funny. But as long as they're pointing you to the cross of Christ, they're good enough. Some aren't so good-willed. Some are like the sophists, and they know that they're going to make money off of the sheep. 
Because the sheep like to follow, they have an inferior complex, and so if I give them what they need, if I present the image that they want to be, if I wear the clothes that they can't afford, if I drive the cars that they can't drive, if I tell the jokes that they only wish they could joke, then they'll follow me, and I'll milk them for all they're worth, and I'll spit them out. So you've got to be weary of that, too. There's no shortage of those examples, and we lament that. And we call it out. We say, that's not, that's not the peculiar wisdom of Christ. All in all, Jesus, the one we serve, had probably about 100 followers when he died. 100! I'll come back in a sec to say, how do we, how do we see this? Or what could we be looking for when we're looking for people that might be un worthy to follow. But first, before I do that, let me ask this important question. Did Paul, Apollos, or Peter do anything wrong? Did they do anything wrong? The answer is no. The answer is no. In a really interesting passage, you don't have to turn there, but in Mark chapter 10, you can go back and read it. Uh, Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to the cross, he's sitting at dinner with his disciples and a couple of them, James and John, son, sons of Zebedee, they, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, like, uh, we know what you said about prayer. It's like, we want you to give us whatever we ask for. <laughs> Jesus says, okay, what do you want? He's like, we want to sit at your left and your right in your kingdom when it comes. Basically, the seats of honor. What's that? Right next to the king. And now you think what Jesus would say to them is like, you guys. You're idiots. (laughs) Like, you don't get it. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says, okay, if you can drink the cup that I'm going to drink, of course, they don't know that Jesus isn't going to conquer the Romans and set up his rule right now, but he's going to go to the cross. They still don't get that. And he says, if you can have a baptism like me, what is Jesus' baptism? That the wrath of God came upon him for the sins of the world. That's what was poured on Jesus. And of course, Jesus knows they can't handle it. But Jesus is also saying, and then he, and then he goes on to say, so can you do that? And they're like, eh, <laughs> this seems like a trick. <laughs> so they don't, they don't say anything. And then he's like, yeah, but you, will, you actually will experience a baptism like mine, which is what is he saying? You will suffer. You will suffer. And pretty much all of the disciples did suffer a martyr's death, very much like Jesus. Of course, they didn't take upon them the spiritual wrath of God for the forgiveness of sin, but they took on pain and suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so then Jesus turns to them, and he says, he says this very famous um, thing to them. Uh, he says this. He says, But it is not so among you. And he had just talked about how tyrants lorded over the people. He said, It's not so amongst you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's servant leadership. That's the peculiar wisdom of Christ. This is how you lead. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, there shall be no leaders. He doesn't say, there shall be no one called to stand in front of people to lead them. He actually says, you guys will be those who stand in front of people and lead them like I lead you. But you do it, and when you do it with servant leadership, that's how you actually bring my kingdom into the world, and God is glorified, and the people are united. So I'll make this very clear. And Paul makes it very clear. He never once will say, stop looking to me, He'll actually say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But he acknowledges, in another letter, he says, to desire to be an elder is a good thing. But he says, when you do it, desire the suffering of leadership, the servant nature of leadership, as much as you desire the influence of leadership. So Paul, Apollos, and Peter did nothing wrong. Human nature and the inferiority complex makes people put on leaders things that they never desired, and actually will end up crushing leaders because of that if the leader doesn't cast it off. But we do still need the structure within the whole body of Christ, the global church, in order to fulfill the mission that God 
has given us. So even though the title of the sermon is The Folly of Following, what I'm going to tell you is, yes, you definitely follow Jesus, and we are each called to follow some spiritual leader that God puts in our life that helps us move in the peculiar wisdom of Christ. So the unfollying of following. Two points. The unfollying of following. Make sure, one, make sure your true follow is Jesus. How do you do that? How do you do that? It takes a lot of introspection. When I listen to a preacher or I read a book, am I asking, God, what are you trying to teach me? Or are you blindly following whatever they say because you happen to be a fan? So make sure you're following Jesus. Make sure after you hear a sermon from me, you go home and you reflect and you ask Jesus, what in that sermon do you want me to truly consider? And he will help you through his spirit if you're open. But if you truly desire to follow him. Now you've got to know him. You've got to read his word so that you can test whatever I say against what Jesus says through his word, Old and New Testament. So you've got to be a student of the word of God. Jesus is the word in flesh. Number two, when you follow these leaders, make absolutely sure that they follow Jesus. Okay? How do you determine this? Look at verses 14 to 17. This will help us. 14 to 17. Here it goes. Paul says, this is the weird part about baptism. He says... (laughs) I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I've, he's like, I, I think I baptized a few other people. I can't even remember. But that's not the point, he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ would be emptied of its effect. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, I think we could take this away. He's saying, first, uh, uh, for the first point, how do you know? Proximity helps. Proximity helps. So like, Paul's like, you guys know me. You know I actually follow Christ. What's the problem? In a mega church or in an online church movement or something like that, like you have no proximity to the person. You only know what they want you to know about them. So just be weary of people you follow who you have no proximity to. Not saying they're all harlotins. Or harlots? No. Charlatans. Charlatans. Freudian slip. See what I did there? Okay. So um, I'm not saying they all are, but they could be because you have no proximity to them. So then you ask the question, how does this pastor or preacher, how do they speak about and conduct baptisms? Here's what I mean by that. Like, we believe in baptism, but do they tend to like to take a lot of credit for somebody being baptized? I baptized so-and-so, or we baptized this many people. Are they always talking about numbers? Does it seem like they care more about numbers than they care about stories? At Sedaris, we have everyone who is baptized tell their story, because it's God's story. It's not about just racking up numbers. Do they only talk about numbers? And if they do, just pay attention a little bit closer. Jesus didn't talk about numbers. Paul didn't talk about numbers. He's trying to like get rid of numbers. He's like, I preach the gospel. It's not wrong to baptize people. We love it at Sedaris when your cohort leader does the baptism or somebody that led you to Christ. We didn't have anything to do with it. We don't just want to take credit for it. You're not baptized into our name. We're all baptized into the name of Christ. So just be careful. How do they talk about baptisms? There's more I could say here, but I'll just, I'll just stop there. Baptisms are so important because they give glory to God, but our, our preachers or leaders trying to take that glory for themselves. Number two, how do they preach? How do they preach? Or you could say it like this. Um, When they preach, do you ever sense that they're pushing other people down in order to get up? Like stepping on people to try to get up. If they are, they're not preaching Christ crucified. Are they preaching the cross? That means are they preaching why we needed the cross? Are they preaching the fallenness of humanity, personal sin, our need for repentance? That's all part of preaching the cross. And Paul says, 
that's the thing he's most worried about, that the cross of Christ is not emptied of its effect. So, like, why do I... When you leave um, a podcast or you leave a sermon, like, because we know not everybody will be at Sedaris for the rest of their life, so when you go to a new church from here, like, when you leave, are you more like, wow, that guy's a really good speaker. (laughs) That guy's so funny. Oh, my gosh, I feel so happy. Or do you feel a deep sense of joy for the cross of Christ, for the sacrifice that God so loved you that he sent his son to die in your place that you might have new resurrected life? What is it? Paul says, I don't speak with eloquent wisdom. He doesn't say I don't speak with wisdom, but I'm not trying to make it I'm not trying to press you with the way I talk. I'm trying to make the peculiar wisdom of the cross so clear to you that you know that's the thing to celebrate. Is that happening? That's a great way to make sure that whoever you're following is following Jesus. Now, caveat here, it's okay to buy a toaster that an influencer you follow on Instagram recommended to you. (laughs) Okay, like... Jesus doesn't care about toasters, so that's fine. But when it comes to the serious things of life, make sure those who you follow, who influence you, are influenced and follow Christ. So this brings me to what we've all been waiting for is a picture, the beautiful picture. Now, if you remember, um, if you remember week one, we talked about the marching band, how moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of God, when all of us do it as the church, we're like a beautiful in-sync marching band who's giving glory to God. We look to our left and look to our right, and we're in step with our brothers and sisters in the faith. But there's a band director, and he's got a plan and a vision, and he knows where we're going, right? We talked about that. Well, because of this MLK sermon I listened to called The Drum Major Instinct, I said, I could add to my illustration. So I'm going to add to it today, okay? So here we have, what do we have? We have a band on a football field, a marching band. Perhaps the Wisconsin Badger marching band, as Augusta DeVries is my marching band consultant. And, and, and so the drum major, and so Martin Luther King wasn't talking about this, but I, it prompted this. He's talking about this instinct for us to want to be out front. So the drum major is not the conductor, is not the band director, but is the band director on the field. Meaning um, the band director is like raised up, like usually on a pedestal, you know what I'm talking about? And then there's people on the field. And Augusta was telling me, I said, is this true? Because it seems the football field's pretty big. Is there more than one drum major? She says, no, there's usually one drum major, but there's field assistants. So imagine this. Each of these sort of groups on the field have an assistant that's over them, okay? Okay. And if they weren't there, the band would not be as in step or in sync. So we need them, right? Paul's not saying we've got to get rid of these guys. He's saying make sure these guys are doing what? They're in step or in, uh, in sync with the band director, right? And the band director is who? Jesus, our Savior, right? Jesus Christ crucified. He's our director. And so at the end of the day, if, we, if, our, if our gaze is only to our field assistant or our drum major, who are those distinguished, those called by God to be set apart so that we might follow Christ by following their model. But if we only look at them and our ultimate gaze is not, and their ultimate gaze is not to Christ, right? If they're looking at Christ, everything's good. If they're not, if they're looking to their own interest, things will get really out of whack. We'll be out of step. Which is to say, our ultimate aim needs to be each and every one focused on following Jesus. And when we do that, something really cool will happen. When we allow the drum majors to play their part, the Pauls, the Apollos, the Peters, even within the local church, this will be people like the deacons and the elders, if we allow them to do the thing that God's told them to do, we begin to form a unified message from God. What's the unified message of God? I haven't practiced this yet, so we'll see if this works, okay? 
we start to reform because the band director has a message he's trying to tell the world, okay? You guys are going to love this. Okay, let's see. Hold on. Let's go here. Okay. And he start now, no, we're not like erasing people necessarily. <laughs> okay, we're not like, we got to kill them off. Okay, no, I'm not saying that. Be very careful. If you pop in at this time, this is not what I'm doing. But what am I doing? We begin to reform, and we have one unified message in the church, okay? And this unified message becomes a beautiful, beautiful message to the world, and it's peculiar to them. They don't quite understand what's going on because they don't know how this is possible. That so many people, the world over, could be marching to the same tune, the same beat, all in line, glorifying what? The beautiful, all-encompassing, radiant, never-ending love of God. When we march in step, when we hear the direction of the one band director, even through those drum majors, those field assistants who God puts in place to help us look to him. We'll tell the world. We'll show the world. We'll surprise the world. We'll baffle the world with the love of God. How in the world are you guys united? How in the world are you guys not envious of one another? How in the world do you work together? And the answer is because we worship someone not of this world. 1 Corinthians 15, I've said, we'll always come back to that. It talks about the man of heaven, the son of heaven. We were all born into this world into sin, following the first man, Adam, who fell from grace. 1 Corinthians 15 will say, now we have an opportunity to follow the man of heaven, the one who God sent from heaven to lead us out of this world, out of the wisdom that we get only from this place into the wisdom of the kingdom. It's love. That's what ends up being our message. And we prove it out by the way we work together. So that's what I hope for us, guys, that we learn to not divide, but to unite as we follow Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And the world will see he's different. Let's pray.